Okay, show of hands, how many of you have watched Miss Fisher and the Crypt of Tears like 20 times? Yep, I thought so. Me too. So when you're done with that, and you've probably also binged some Miss Fisher's murder mysteries because we all have time on our hands these days, I would highly encourage you to check out the rest of what's on Acorn. They have really good things, including, of course, Ms. Fisher's modern murder mysteries, the continuation of the Phrynyverse with her niece, Peregrine. So definitely check that out if you haven't. It's set in the 1960s. It's really fun. Um, and another show that I'm currently obsessed with is My Life is Murder, starring Lucy Lawless. She is really great. And one of my uh, favorite things about this show is it shows current day Melbourne. She goes all over town and it's really fun to catch those glimpses. So I definitely encourage you to check out My Life is Murder and lots of other good things on Acorn. So if you haven't yet subscribed, you can use the trial code CRYPT, C-R-Y-P-T, for a free 30-day trial. But I would encourage you to just do it. Just go ahead, sign up. They've got really good stuff. So go to acorn.tv in your web browser or look for their app on your smart TV. And big thanks to Acorn for sponsoring this episode of The Miss Fisher Files. All right, enjoy. Hello, this is Mary. And this is Chandler. And this is JoJo. And you're listening to The Miss Fisher Files. I guess a good place to start, because I have so many questions. <laughs> I have wanted to talk to you truly for years. Um, and so I'm, it, this is quite an honor. So thank you for, oh, for thank talking you for to me. me. Thank you for persisting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm really curious what kind of process you used to create the character and find the essence of Phryne as you were developing her costume wardrobe. Um, Franny was slightly different in some ways because it came from a really famous um, book from Kerry Greenwood's book and uh, she'd done a whole series of books about Franny and her characters and her adventures and so um, and had quite detailed descriptions of costumes within her books. Um, so when I was approached to do Franny, I started reading. I already had read of, read some of Kerry's books and quite enjoyed them. Mm -hmm. My sister's hairdresser actually had lent my sister some and she'd said, you might like to read these books. <laughs> so I knew about it before I got approached about the show. And um, so I started reading it and then I realised that the scripts and the books um, departed and that there was really, there was no way, it was going to be defeatist actually trying to reproduce Kerry's costumes because they didn't, they didn't work in the same way because even though the scripts have the same intent as the book, they don't arrive at the same conclusion in the same way. Mm -hmm. So it was not possible to do with stunts and action and all right. sorts of things. There was no way. So I had to find my own way of, of um, clothing, Essie, that, that would actually work for the nature, um, the emotional nature, the... Um, um, the stunts, the action pieces, mm, whether I, I, I find that f um, in those scripts, uh, every single episode had a completely different sort of color palette in a way, hmm. and a very different sort of emotional base, and I, I would respond to that. Um, but anyway, getting back to how I did it, I realized that I had to find my own way of doing it, and it was truly terrifying because because <laughs> um, there was such a big following, uh, quite. 
you know, very strong following of Kerry's. And um, so I, I mulled over it for quite a while. The, the pre-production process where you actually try and work out how you're going to do it, how you're going to make it all play, how the ensemble cast are all going to fit in together is really incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And it was a curious piece because normally in costume design, what one wants to do is actually make the costumes um, just blend into the scene. So you work out the character and, and every single piece of something, it could be a wedding ring, it could be a shoelace, it could be it, it, any single part of it actually has to respond to that character. You can't find a pair of brown shoes that are too frivolous or too mundane or too uniform. It has to be the right pair of shoes. Mm -hmm. So nothing's there by mistake. But with Miss Fisher... She was bright and shiny and she was, she was this um, woman that sort of burst onto the scene in Melbourne with extraordinary pizzazz. Melbourne at the time was deeply conservative, mm. um, followed um, English fashion, was incredibly conservative. And so I had to find a way to make her sing. And as much as I truly adore vintage clothing, a lot of it was slightly tarnished. It wasn't the right size. The um, fabric had lost its um, ha had lost its sort of shine, and also they start dropping. Mm -hmm. um, so there was only small amounts of the vintage, uh, true vintage that I could use. But I used an enormous amount of the accessories and um, you know buttons and trimmings and all of that to to make it. So, but I had to construct the whole entire thing. I realised. Um, to make her shine and to make her sing. Rather than use pieces that existed already. Mm. So they... Because she would have had a dressmaker. She would have... Right. Everything would have been made to fit her. Everything had to sort of... Had to respond to the episode, had to respond to the piece. Um, and early on, I realised that it was a really great thing to use fabric as a metaphor for her physicality, for mm -hmm. her... For her she used to burst into rooms and I wanted the fabric to move with her and I wanted this waft and I wanted this whole entire – she – exuberance. Mm -hmm. And I thought the fabric would be able to introduce that exuberance. And I was incredibly lucky that it was Essie because Essie oh, is terrific and she's cheeky and she's <laughs> um, got an extraordinary wit and she understood clothes mm -hmm. and fabric and, and could move. Some actors would have been swamped in the amount of cloth. But Essie has a way of manipulating it and enjoying it. And you can see that enjoyment. Oh, and so it was a great can. joy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's part of what I think people love about the show is she just enjoys her life and her clothing is such a big part of that. Mm. And it's such a rarity to get to see a woman be so joyful and unapologetic about it. Unapologetic. And, you know, she's got the gorgeous, um, you know, Aunt, Aunt Prudence, which is, you know, she's a fabulous foil. <laughs> she's this very straight-laced Victorian woman who didn't celebrate, you know, the the um, cut hair, the, the every single part of Phryne. Aunt Prudence had a slight... Uh, she slightly disapproved, but mm -hmm. at the same time, I think there was part of Aunt Prudence that actually silently cheered. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like that comes out late in the series. Yes. When the series first came out, the first series, I went into hiding because <laughs> I thought that Kerry Greenwood's fan base would actually pillar me. <laughs> and I was extreme, and I just went, I freaked out, and, um, I, I, and then... Um, 
they accepted it and it, and really enjoyed it, which was great. But I was w- was incredibly nervous because it was a departure from the books, mm, okay. and a lot of people wanted the books. Sure. But that was within television and the nature of television and episodic uh, television. That was not possible. How do you present that work initially? Do you d- submit drawings to every cloud and, and work with them? Uh, absolutely. Um, you start with colour palettes. Mm-hmm. You start with um, working out exactly how, how the ensemble cast is going to work, um, all of the colours, all of the styles, um, and you just put together an overview. Okay. And then so for every episode I do drawings, um, fabric swatches, etc. And with the director producers we'd sit down and chat. Hmm. Hmm. How long does it take to do one episode? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's television, and it's short, and it's quick, and oh, it's um, and it's really um, it's cruel. <laughs> um, but you know, we were doing um, a lot of the time. We were doing three episodes. Well, you do two at the same time. But we were doing so they're called blocks. So we're doing three blocks at the same t- at the same time. So we're shooting one. In pre-production for another, in, in pre-pre-production mm. for another. Because sometimes it would take about eight weeks, nine weeks to find all the bits. Oh, wow. Because you're searching for mm-hmm. the perfect shoe, the perfect, you know, we will dye a hosiery, we would dye everything, we would colour change shoes. We, we had no money. Uh, <laughs> and we would be, um, Gareth Blaha, who was my design assistant, he became a really proficient um, shoe finisher, uh, milliner, all sorts of things, jewellery maker. Um I had a buyer who was a part-time art finisher Mm. Um, and she's – Margot McCartney, she's a sensational um, uh, dyer of cloth and without that it wouldn't have worked because you needed to play the colours against each other. You needed to be able to have that slight sort of variation to to get the right colour feather, the right hue Mm -hmm. was really important. Would it get on camera and then you'd see it was maybe slightly off like, would you change things at that point? Or mm, one of your jobs as a designer is actually to know um, how your director of photography is going to light. Mm-hmm. So I, I would always know um, every single thing that the art department were going to do, where what rooms they were going to be in, mm-hmm. whether it were exterior, interior. Um, I'd know um, what the props were, the dressings were, all sorts of things. So you, you, you know what cars they're going to drive. <laughs> you, you know, mm-hmm. every, you, you need to know everything. So it's quite sort of detailed um, where people are going to be placed or put or um, what wallpaper they're going to be next to and whether you want them to sink in or stand out or what, what, how you want mm-hmm. to play it. But a big part of your job is actually knowing what the director of photography, how, the, how they light. Because you can't... You can't you've got to know how a colour works and how it's going to react. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's going to be if whether it's going to be washed out or, or or washed out or overblown. So you can't ever do art finishing and do breaking down properly unless you know that. Every single thing. So I had to one of the big parts of my job was actually going back and looking at a lot of Roger's work, mm-hmm. um, the director of photography, to just to see how he lights stuff. So I knew how to colour stuff. Oh, that's yes. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. That would give you a lot of direction. <laughs> yeah, his his lighting is just absolutely stunning. Mm. And I always think of the uh, death-defying feats when she's coming down from on the hoop, and you have the light coming through her glorious mermaid outfit. And actually, I would love to hear about the construction of the mermaid mm. costume. The, interesting, you ask that because there is an enormous amount. There was an enormous amount of research put into that. Um, 
every single piece on that costume was actually made like um, um, made like a, a scale on a fish, and so they were shanked behind and they moved. So first of all. I designed a piece and I wanted it to move like a fish that was quite sort of sinuous and, and like scales and it just had this beautiful thing. I had to find sequins and cloth that didn't go dead and flat in the water mm. so the colour wouldn't be lost so the sequins would still sparkle because a lot of times once the thing hits the water it loses its luminosity, it um, loses its sparkle and I didn't want that to happen because, you know, th this is... Um, this is theatre. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, so uh, we, I found quite a few pieces of cloth and so they all then got tested in water, then to see how they'd float, see what the, happened with colours, et cetera, et cetera. Then we had to – then we ended up with three different size um, sort of like um, scale shapes um, and three different sizes. So then we'd work out how to um, – it's like plating them, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, and how they're going to work, and then the length of the length of actual the shank. So how far you wanted it to move. So what your physical movement was going to be, because you didn't want it to go so far that that you'd see the the back end that you shouldn't actually see. Okay. So you lose its magic. So there was an enormous amount of work. There was <laughs> it <laughs> there sounds. was buckets of water all over the place. There was all sorts of things. <laughs> it was, but um, th that's the sort of detail one must. Well, yeah, one goes to to actually make something work properly. So then you see it on screen and it looks beautiful and it looks seamless and it reacts the way you want it to react. It's just a stunning costume and I love hearing <laughs> the story behind it and just how much research and time it But that took taken. about three weeks really from oh, wow. beginning to end okay. of, you know, finding stuff, of, of changing stuff, of doing experiments. Hmm. So it takes a whole team to do things. I'm sure. So... Um, you know, four or five people will handle something. What too. was the trickiest piece you had? Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> Do you know, one of the things that gives me an enormous amount of joy was that big lyrics. It was like a, it was like a big, big, big shawl that had... Um, I don't know, something like 16 metres of feathers oh. on the bottom of the begin, end of, I think it was season, season one. one. yes. And um, it had been a very sort of, um, oh, Franny had gone, it was a really sad journey with her sister, working out what had happened to her sister, the whole entire um, um, backstory that came with Miss Fisher, with Franny. And... It was her birthday and it was the solstice and I really wanted it to be this really sublime moment where, as she had the great um, capacity to do, she'd just pull herself together mm -hmm. and would then shine and be the brilliant Franny that she was. And so I wanted a piece that actually had an enormous amount of movement and um, so I came I, – I decided that it needed to be a piece that she walked into the room and then just did this extraordinary sort of swirl. Dana Reed, who was the director, bless her cotton socks, because <laughs> um, <laughs> I put an enormous amount of work in working out the weight of the feathers – the sort of fabric that I wanted, finding the sort of fabric that I wanted, and then the weight of the feathers to actually make that movement, to make that twirl. If you have too many, it weights it down. If you have mm. too few, it doesn't actually give it the the momentum to actually make the movement. Right. So there was quite a lot of um, 
merriment within my department going, oh, really, Marion? Oh, really? Oh, really? <laughs> because, you know, you know so often when you design stuff, you design things and people then don't use them mm-hmm. for all sorts of reasons. Maybe sometimes they don't understand them. Maybe sometimes they, do, they run out of time. All sorts of things can... And sometimes it's deeply disappointing. But Dana Reed, Blessed Cotton Socks, understood completely and saw Essie moving in it and reframed the scene. Oh, wow. So she came in and she did a big swing and it and it worked exactly how in my head because you often imagine things you actually have a vision in your head you actually see it play out and it came to life the way I designed it and it was that's truly thrilling those moments I'm sure it is yeah that is one of the most (laughs) glorious moments when she does that Mm. spin and I'm very happy this is not the case but it the, the series could have ended on that note and that I feel like was the wonderful kind of bookend to Phryne, the character, that Mm. she did pull herself together after this really difficult time Mm. and did this sublime spin. And it's just, oh, it's the most glorious scene. And that's what, um, getting back to what I was talking about before with cloth and, you know, metaphor and momentum of, of it was a character, like it was a, a choice about character. Fabric's always been a big part of how... Um, what one's worth in the world, mm. what um, your choices as a person. Um, uh, fabric plays a really big part in it, whether you want to hide, whether you want to be seen, whether you want... I mean, fabric says so much about you. Right. That, I think um, mm. some, sometimes it's hard in our current society to think about what the, the value of that fabric at, in the 1920s and how incredibly expensive her clothing would have been yeah. in comparison to the average person's. Oh, far out. <laughs> <laughs> truly extraordinary, truly extraordinary. And it, what I loved about the 20s is the ensembles. It was still ensemble dressing. Mm. And so everything was made for an outfit. So it wasn't just you had a winter coat and a hat. Well, Dot had a winter coat and a hat. Mm-hmm. And that would have to last her quite a few years, sometimes half a life, lifetime, mm. because that's how expensive... Um, cloth was Um, and a few things about the 20s one is the ensembles and how delicious it is being able to design from the shoes to the hats Mm. the whole the whole thing Um, that was great but also you've got you've got morning clothes you've got bed clothes you've got morning clothes where you write your letters in your room then you've got um um Lunch, outfits for lunch. Then you've got afternoon ensembles. Then you have um, dinner ensembles. Then you have theatre, um, opera. Um, you have bridge coats, which bridge the difference between um, dinner and, say, um, the opera. Hmm. I mean, there's all sorts of oh, wow. um, outfits for different occasions. Mm-hmm. Every occasion had an outfit. And, and that was just such an enormous amount of fun doing that. Exploring those different worlds. <laughs> I'm you sure. know, hunting, tennis, fishing, whatever, <laughs> you name it, golf. Oh, tennis. Let's talk oh, about tennis. that. I <laughs> know that you petitioned quite I heavily did, did. to have an episode that focused on... Uh, I was really naughty. No. <laughs> um, I think you were very persistent. <laughs> I was very persistent. I just loved the whole entire of uh, um, Rip and Lee. Um, the gardens there are truly divine. And I just there's something so truly beautiful about gardens and the time that time, and I could always see the whites out in the garden, and I thought the backdrop of the house and we'd never used the sort of the big front of the house and the front lawn, and um, I just 
I love the whole idea of people actually playing tennis in high heels because they did. But <laughs> <laughs> they didn't. Um, they actually, you know, had it was just, you know, white, beautiful white kid leather shoes or whatever. And um, I just loved the whole idea of the, the tennis and the white and the, and the gardens. It was something truly beautiful about that. So I used to, um, my staff, we, all, we were incredibly close on that show. It was really hard work, but everybody enjoyed it an enormous amount. And it was a real team camaraderie. And all of us had 25 hats we had to wear to make it work. <laughs> and um, so all my staff joined in. Um, on the petitioning for the tennis and they would find like tennis brooches. so I'd turn up to meetings and with you know a tennis racket over my shoulder you know <laughs> tennis brooches on all sorts of things and it became very apparent that that I was dusting for a tennis um, episode. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> well in that episode you wanted tennis and it sounds like Fiona was trying to overcome her arachnophobia and find it. at some point she wanted a spider to be the murder weapon and so I love that you both got your wishes, your wishes in that one episode. Do you know, the, the spider actually created an enormous amount of grief for me. I'd found this most divine um, um, dressing gown for her for the scene with the spider. But the spider, because it has these little furry bits off its legs, couldn't go on the dressing gown and was actually going to get stuck oh, no. on the chiffon. Oh, no. So I had to actually change out the dressing gown because of the blooming spider. <laughs> Oh, wow. But it's so, so wacky the, um, the, um, how our world's governed by things like, um, oh, no, the spider can't work, walk on that fabric. Oh, <laughs> that's terrific to know. Oh, from now on, I'll only be wearing chiffon. No. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, seriously, we, a lot of our um, decisions and why Fr Franny ended up probably wearing pants more than I originally intended was because of the um, – each script gets, each script gets um, looked at by a safety officer and a stunt coordinator, and they, you know, have certain comments about all sorts of things, um, safety, stunts, etc. And so just for the pure movement, because she she was very active, there had to be more pants than, than um, probably I originally intended, but um, she just looked terrific in them and the movement of them was great, and um, they just became such a part of the character. She wears them so well. She does. She does. Was there an evolution of her wardrobe over the course of the series? Did you change it to be cheekier or did you add any elements that you hadn't anticipated doing in the beginning? Um, no, I don't think so. I think more it morphed because of what the script... Um, what the episode was about. Say mm. if we were doing stuff in, you know, Collingwood, which was incredibly poverty-stricken at the time, I would be, you know, very aware of the environment that, that Franny was walking into. Um, she was very socially aware. Mm -hmm. So it was more the scripts actually dictated emotionally what happened. So things changed because of the scripts in a lot of ways. I did um, realise, and it's quite, it's quite strange when you sit back and analyse something and at one stage I was deciding whether I needed more or less on a hat and I, st I just started laughing. I just got this image of the Queen Mother <laughs> whose hats I just loved. She was so <laughs> nutty and um, really, really over the top. And I, I looked at this hat and I went, no, 
It's got to be more. It's not quite the Queen Mother yet. <laughs> and and I realised <laughs> it was just, just one of those very strange moments of when you realise where you've been influenced from or how or why because her hats were just – there was something so so sort of – it had such sort of um, overblown whimsy in a way. So they weren't, as, they weren't mumsy like the Queen Mother's hat but it had the same sort of exuberance. The Queen Mother really – came from a time that was, I mean, she was around in the, that early part of the century and so was very much of that that really dressed hat and that was part of um, her social standing in life, mm-hmm. represented that. Well, what else influenced you as you were creating these? Do you know, I suppose um, when you're doing research, research is an incredibly important part of actually um, pulling any piece together. Mm-hmm. And uh, you need to really spend your time doing research. And it's, it's art, it's architecture, it's social mores, it's political history. It's everything informs you about a piece mm-hmm. and how to, um, how to uh, go forward. It's like, you know, Sess and Bert's um, standing in life. Uh, Dr Mack, where she came from, how she got to where she was. I mean, you, you need to know a lot about history and what made the time, what made the people react in a certain way. The, the 20s was a time that will never really... ..that will never happen again because hmm. it was... Um, ..it came from war and it came from a very dark place. Mm-hmm. And so that explosion of... of um, uh, ..joy and let's live... Let's live life to gay abandon. That whole entire music, the music, the art, the way people started living in a much more bohemian way, all came out of a period that will never be repeated again because it was a social movement that came mm-hmm. out of out of um, such extraordinary dark times. Um, what what really is surprising about the twenties, and as you do start doing research, a lot of us. Because we're used to seeing black and white photographs, black and white films, sepia tones, etc., there was an enormous amount of colour in hmm. the twenties, and much it was much brighter than one actually imagines it to be. That's really interesting. Yeah, I don't <laughs> imagine it being bright. Mm, it was actually quite bright, but one has huh. to be really careful because there's what you can only go so far you, because you can't because if something starts jarring because people's then imagination can't quite go that far you have to be really careful about the balance so you don't want to dial it down but you can't dial it so far up as right. well at the same time because it looks it feels wrong because people's huh. perceptions has been a much more muted version because of we're used to seeing black and white right uh, through a lot of that time were there certain colors that were more expensive to produce in the 20s um it was more of a thing that was harder to clean Oh, so sure. things like uh, if you were dots in and dots sort of um, um, domestic, or you would never wear white. You would never wear um, something that was light because there was a lot of soot in the air. Everything was, you know, a briquette, um, uh, briquette um, heating, and mm-hmm. you know that was quite dirty right. in a lot of ways. And white was this colour of. Ex- um, only the wealthy could afford to wear white, A, for the cleaning, and B, it didn't last that long. I mean, a lot of men, that's why, the, you know, detachable, detachable collars. So mm-hmm. you didn't have to wash the shirt, but you just took the collars off, changed the collars, changed the cuffs in a, a large um, portion of time. Why people wore dust coats, why, you know, why a lot of the fashion came about was because of the way the world was. But white 
and very light sumptuous colours, very light sort of um, silks and chiffons and all of those fabrics, brocades, furs. Um, there was a lot of embellishment at the time. Mm. Mm. Yeah, you would definitely need a dot to wear many of those things. <laughs> yeah, dot dot was really beautiful, and I I I received quite a, quite a well a little bit of mail about dot and people saying mm, we really want dot to have some of um, Franny's finery, mm. but dot. It would have been wrong to put Dot character-wise in the finery. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have been against her station in life. And she really had a place and she loved her place and she was happy in her place. She she was not um, as sexually um, aware or provocative as Franny. It was just a style that she found quite racy. I mean, I, she, she, she loved it and she loved her mistress and she... Um, Loved her place in the world. Mm. And so it would have been a complete betrayal of everything and really wrong for the actor to actually put her in something that was that was Franny-esque. Right. Mm. Well, we see Franny offering for her to wear any of her clothes or she has a dress, I think, mm. in mm. the... Uh, Absolutely. I think it's Games That Murder when they're they're talking about the Oh, yes, yeah. to, what, to the soiree on the boat or yes. something. Yes, yes, and yes. she's trying to tempt Dot into wearing something from her cl- own closet, and Dot mm. is not sure that <laughs> she <laughs> wants to at all. do it. Not interested but at all. But there's such a wonderful contrast with those two characters, and you really, mm. I mean, Dot shows you how, I guess, normal people would have been in that yes. day. Yes, and also the, uh, the limit to their um, wardrobe. Mm-hmm. So you did see... I, because Franny changed so many times, because that's what one did, and um, uh, that's what a woman of her social standing did. And um, I tried to keep the other characters much more grounded mm. and stable, because otherwise, if people, everyone changed all the time, it just would have become an awfully messy thing for people to try and understand where we were story wise. Right. Um, so I, and I realised it was really a, a really good way to um, give it balance. One of the things I love is that she Franny does rewear pieces throughout the series, and I think that such a wonderful balance between um, just portraying her as a clothes horse who only cares about fashion, mm. but it, it also seems like it would have been accurate to the time period. You couldn't, even yeah. someone as wealthy as her, could not just wear things one time. And also uh, what I liked character-wise about her, that she also had a social conscience. Mm-hmm. And so she wasn't um, a, a fickle woman who just went, hello, it's all about my clothes. It's not. Um, and I... Like the dust coat that she wears, the car coat that she wears. The and The flax one? Yeah, the flax yeah. one. I always wanted that to, like, an ode to detectives. Oh, so yes. So that was her form of a, <laughs> that was her form of detective coat. Oh, yes. <laughs> so that was, um, so often she would wear that at the end of the piece when she was solving the crime. Oh, that's true. I hadn't put that together. And look, we've got sirens right oh, on yeah. cue. How extraordinary. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> oh, something's going on there. <laughs> um, but, you know, getting to Jack's um, trench coat, I love that trench coat. And I had a lot of trench coats and I tried them on him. And that had this strange curl to one side. Hmm. And I kept, when, when I was doing fittings, I kept going back to that coat. And it was like, you know, there's a certain beautiful stillness about um, Jack 
and you don't quite know often what he's thinking and his expressions are truly delicious because you're not quite <laughs> sure what's going on in that very beautiful face of his, <laughs> behind that very beautiful facade of his. And so I love that to me, that little bit of sort of was like a burnt sienna coming out um, was just like a, a little bit of his underside showing and it was just it was just made him less enclosed in a way mm-hmm. and i and i had to end up with that um, coat and it was just the curl it was something in the way that coat had been constructed had been constructed wrongly that it actually did that huh. and i realized that, that that's what it that's what he needed was that little bit of his inner soul coming mm-hmm. out just and, and nudging the corner it, and that's strange how character pieces happen oh that's funny yeah, mm. I thought, I mean, I always assumed that was intentional. Yeah, it was intentional. Is, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I kept going like, no, no, it's just too straight. <laughs> just, no, I kept going back to that. And, and Nathan and I chatted about it. And, um, but it was, the, it was, and it was always, I liked it in a bit of his, in a bit of his um, soul. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, you, and you don't see it very often. It's when he's on the move and you just get this flash of bright red and mm. it, yeah, it's, mm. it works so oh, well. Oh, and he's leaning against a wall, oh, truly yes. perplexed at something that, that um, Franny's done. His leans are, <laughs> are epic. <laughs> they are. <laughs> yeah. There are actually uh, some fans who have charted all of his leans. Oh, you're joking. They have named them. Like there's the teapot and they, it is, they are amazing in their scientific research. Wow. About wow. his leans. So, That's yes, extraordinary. Well-documented leans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I have been amused by each episode, like people who meticulously go through and work out how many times he's worn a tie. And, <laughs> and I just, I just I'm, I'm gobsmacked um, by the enthusiasm and the, and the love. But um, mm, There's it's been a- quite touching. A lot to love about the show <laughs> and the and the costumes, which are just glorious. Mm-hmm. And I know you used um, elements from your own collection throughout. And at some point, I feel like I read that you cut into some vintage fabric you'd had for a long time. Which costume was that? It's in my cupboard here. Um, there's quite a few here. Um, that was actually a vintage piece of Chanel, mm. the black and white coat that had the big um, um, fail inserts. Um, I don't know what episode it was for, but uh, I needed a coat. It needed to be black and white. You know, I have a large – might surprise you, but I have a large fabric collection. <laughs> and um, – um, you save things, you buy things, you see things, you, you go, oh, my God, that is so divine. And, you know, the, the thing about need and want completely goes out the window. <laughs> and uh, you end up... Every time I go away with my husband, we, we travel a, a little bit and um, he knows where the FedEx depot is. <laughs> um, so we're not lugging things around the world. Um because he realises, especially if we're going to Italy, it's just completely oh. and utterly all, all bets are off. But anyway, <laughs> I'd had this vintage piece of Chanel for quite a long time and um, I couldn't find anything that had the weight and the drape and the movement. It was just the perfect piece of fabric, so I went, okay. But when you find the perfect character and the perfect part, it's really easy to give the cloth away. Mm. It's really mm-hmm. easy to cut into it because that's what you bought it for in the first place. Right. And that's why you... 
have saved it for all this time. So anyway, so we made this coat and then I'm walking from the production office to the studio and there is Essie sitting in the gutter in this vintage (laughs) Chanel. (laughs) (laughs) And every single fibre of my body wanted to go, get out of the gutter, Essie, just get out of the gutter. And I had to stop myself (laughs) because because character-wise... Bryony would have sat in the gutter. And then that was Dot's job to sort it out. Right. So I had to let it go and I had to physically move myself <laughs> forward because I was just like, oh, my Chanel's in the gutter. Great. Um, but it was part of her character. That's what she would have done. Right. Was this the coat in Dead Air by any chance? I don't know the name okay. of the episode. Well, it's the radio station one and it was like a black and white woven. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, my one. goodness. All right. With that really beautiful, um, which has been a treasure of mine for a long time, that beautiful beret um, that she wears as the cat burglar, which is a vintage oh, Sonia Ricciel. Yes. That's a divine shape. We call that the B&E beret, break and enter. Oh, yes, yes. yes that's, because you always know I call what it she's the cat up burglar. to. The cat burglar, yes. <laughs> that is a divine beret. I've had that for a really long time. And that's made in the traditional manner, sewn from the inside. It's hand sewn, each part of it, and that gives it the beautiful shape. Oh, my goodness. It's divine. It's so perfect for her character, mm. and you know exactly what she's getting up to when she puts that on. Yes. <laughs> it's such a wonderful <laughs> signal. Like, oh, is, she's up is. to no good right it's now. It's true. <laughs> it's true. And I, I love, you know, for each episode, I would get, um, I would get uh, Essie for one fitting hmm. for, for, two, for two episodes, say for one block. And um, so it'd be a, I'd probably get one hour. And um, we'd have to try on, you know, 16, 18 costumes and every single piece of jewellery, handbag, da 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 because everything would, would be settled in that fitting. Mm-hmm. And so then everything goes out photographed, the way it's worn, et cetera, um, the gloves, everything. So there's nothing's left to chance. And um, it used to be so terrific. Essie, the door used to open and Essie used to... I mean, she was always exhausted because she had a very big workload. And she used to burst in and she used to squeal. And when she squealed, it was just it – was, it was joyful actually working with Essie. I really um, quite adored it. <laughs> that must have been – oh, yeah. Hmm. Um, what were some of her favourite pieces and some of your favourite pieces? The one piece that we both loved was the cockfighting dressing gown. Oh, yes. Yes, um, yes. And that is a divine piece. I'd had that for many years. I bought that years ago – uh, I was doing a film in Los Angeles and I, at the end of the film I needed a treat and that was my treat. <laughs> I went to this one of my favourite stores in the whole entire of Los Angeles and um, I found this dressing gown. It was vastly expensive at the time. But I went, Salavi, this is just <laughs> divine. And I'd never used it. I'd never even worn it. Hmm. But it's um, an original, it was one of the last pieces that came out of China. Oh, it's wow. hand embroidered. It's just truly divine. It's in my cupboard. I'll show you in a minute. Oh, yes. Thank um, you. And it's really beautiful. And Essie and I both uh, had a real penchant for that dressing gown. I mean, it's just, it's so It perfect. suited her. And um, it became a really easy decision because it was the right thing for her. Right. But, uh, no, look, there's many things for many different reasons. And mm. sometimes they're, they're odd things. Are there any other pieces that you have seen? You know, there's, there's one... Hat that was um, for Dr. Mac for the snow episode, the Christmas episode. Yes. And I wanted an acorn for her hat, for the turn up of the hat. <laughs> I wanted an acorn 
And for love or money, no one could find an acorn. We searched high and low. Everybody was searching. It felt like the whole of Melbourne was searching for acorns. We couldn't <laughs> find an acorn. And I was just getting it. It had been weeks and weeks and weeks. And I find it really difficult to move on. And I couldn't even find it. And then people, well, people would bring me other things. And, you know, I was searching everywhere. Everyone was searching. Every weekend I was driving everyone nuts. Um, and... It's really hard once you've got something in your head then to make a compromise oh, right. to then actually move on. Right. And I was just getting to the stage where I'm just sort of playing around with other things in my head thinking, wow. Because <laughs> very few times do we actually have to completely change track. Um, anyway, I came to work. It was, I, I come to work really early in the morning. I really love it because there's no telephones, there's no staff. It's the only time I really get free time to myself to draw... Um, in uninterrupted freedom, really. And, you know, then I roam through the workroom and look at, you know, everything and um, make a lot of decisions. And from then on, you're on set and there's meetings, there's all sorts of things going on. So, uh, and anyway, there on my desk was a box and I opened this box and in it was this, this most divine hand-carved acorn with a little bit of branch, the exact thing that I wanted. <laughs> And Gareth Blaha, it still makes me cry actually, um, had gone home for nights and nights and nights and had hand-carved out of Fimo this acorn and then left it on my desk. It was the most touching thing. And so because it it came from his heart and he knew that it's what I really wanted and so as a great surprise he hand-carved it for me, which was truly divine and did it in his own time at night time. Later that day, his partner rang me and said, oh, thank God the acorn's finished. Now I'm going to get dinner. (laughs) 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 But um, things like that, I mean, there's lots and lots of bits like that because they come from someone's, either someone's collection or someone's donated it or it it comes from a place where you just find something that's so physically beautiful that it's just like, wow. So often it's a bit, not a, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I get the sense that the show was was personal to a lot of the mm. people who worked on it. Mm. And that that really comes through and I think that's also why people love it. I th- I think you, I think you're exactly right. Our, our department was small and tight and but it was joyful and people put in an enormous amount. People got an enormous amount out of it and people put in an enormous amount. There was a lot of people's hearts there. And um uh you know, it was ABC uh, co-production and we, a lot of people think that we had quite a lot of money but we didn't have a lot of money. Um, I have a lot of friends, extremely lucky, and a lot of people showed us extreme kindness. Hmm. Mm. People submitted pieces to the show, didn't no, they? No, not to Miss Fisher. Oh, okay. Yeah, not not to Miss Fisher. Um, um some people after season one, um, mostly after after um, the first costume show, some people sent me bits of lace and stuff, but n- no. Um, mm. th- no one knew about the show. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. so. Right, mm. yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, sometimes um, someone's... You know, there's a whole thing, and it's... Uh, I, I find it incredibly sad, but it's the way of the world, really. Um for a really long time, people's um, history has been um, has existed through the family treasures, mm. 
and everybody's aunt or mother or someone has the family treasures and things are brought out of boxes and cupboards and, you know, I'm, a, I'm this bowerbird and I love the treasures. <laughs> and I, I, I've always, um, you know, I spent my childhood going through, my great-grandmother was a master uh, lace maker and my mother had really beautiful trunks of lace oh. and I used to, um, at weekends, go through, I used to offer to um, dust my mother's dressing table so I could just play with her jewels all day. Because you weren't allowed to play with the jewels, sure. but it's the only way you could do it. Never got <laughs> dusted ever. I know. I know that she knew what was up. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I've loved, always loved the boxes of treasures, and and I suppose in a weird way, I used to live in a dreamland. Hmm. And um, but nowadays, people don't want the treasures. Hmm. People aren't collecting the treasures. New generations go, mm, great. All those boxes. Where am I going to put all those boxes? Yeah. They don't have the space. They don't have the cupboards. They don't have the time. The upkeep of often of family treasures is really mm-hmm. tough. Um, you know, keep them washed, aired, cleaned, turned. Right. Um, storing them properly, having enough space, not getting hot, not getting cold. You know, there's lots of things of how things have to be stored. And um, so people are going, uh, realising that um, the next generation is actually going to give them away. Mm. And the idea of them going to an op shop or being cut up or being sent to the tip is beyond them. So often now, you know, um, sometimes they're the most delicious collection of um, collars that have been cut off, dresses, when dresses have worn out but still collars can be recycled and stuff. You'll get like a, someone will send you a beautiful, sometimes in the post I receive this, just a little parcel of just the most beautiful little collars or something mm. of that ilk. And that's really lovely. Oh, I bet that is. Um, because they know that, the next generation they can't sew, don't want to sew, mm-hmm. or um, their eyes glaze over. Right. And so... Mm. There's still a few of us who hang oh, on totally. to those family oh, treasures, totally. much to and the it, and it has, dismay of our partners. <laughs> it, has, it has delighted me. I, you know, 15 years ago, I was really worried about who was going to be sewing, mm. who was actually going to be sewing, because there was no new people coming through. Hmm. And what happens when everyone retires? What are we going to do? We're going to have to do it offshore. I mean, my biggest joy is actually being in a workroom with with cutters and art finishes and, oh, it's so joyful. It's just great. Um, And I was really worried. And in the last, say, eight years, there's been a whole um, resurgence of people who are actually back into doing craft, doing sewing, doing high-end finishing, all sorts of stuff. It's just great. Um, All the schools are full again. Hmm. And I think because we live in a very generic world and everyone looks the same no matter where you go, you could go, you know, to Peru and there's, you know, Adidas walking down the street in some weird way. Everyone wants to look the same. That I think people are now are going, I don't want to look – I don't want that. I don't want this fast fashion. Mm-hmm. I, I'm looking for a different way to um, – present myself to be myself to I don't want to look like this generic thing and I'm also very cross that this piece of clothing that I paid this amount of money for only really lasts for five wears right and I think that people are looking for something different I think you're right I think it ebbs and flows that way which is great yes it is great (laughs) oh well thank you so much for telling me all about the process and the glorious costumes. Oh, no, thank you for coming. And um, it's been a true delight. And um, 
I've, I've been very touched by the amount of um, joy that people have received from the show. And uh, it's really lovely. Often waking up really early in the morning and there's a really beautiful note from someone. It's been... Oh, wow. Uh, um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think all the fans say thank you for creating this lovely, lovely body of work. Thanks, Mary.